John 3, great passage, and we're going to look at another wonderful passage from Matthew chapter 9, and we'll continue on with this theme of Jesus above all, but I want you to think about it. There's a reality in this world called sin, and Jesus is above sin. In fact, he doesn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's the gospel. That's what we hold to. And it's amazing, and it's called grace. We're going to look at this uh, wonderful theme in just a moment. I want to go with you to the Lord in prayer. And we've talked about uh, prayer as being a foundational part of this church family. And, and for not just this church, but for our community, for our own families, for our schools, for where we work, for our government, for our world... And we need to believe, and I hope you will believe with me right now, that our prayers matter to God. So we're going to be praying for peace in the world, and that's a big prayer, but we have a great God, and so we'll pray for peace. And we'll ask for a ceasefire in Ukraine. We're going to pray for those who are refugees right now. We just pray, and we trust God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Bring your concerns before the throne of grace right now and acknowledge Jesus is above all. Father, we thank you that you hear every prayer, every thought. It comes before you. And Lord, I pray that the prayers, the desires of our heart is first that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. And Lord, we know that you are holy and we live in a needy world. We thank you that Jesus came to this needy world, and he came to save us from our sins. And yet, Lord, we recognize that there is evil still in our world, and we pray against it. And we recognize that Jesus is above all principalities and powers, and we pray in particular for the ongoing war, that invasion of the Ukraine, and pray that there would be a ceasefire. And Lord, we want to be bold in our prayers. I pray that that ceasefire would happen this week. If it doesn't happen this week, we'll pray for it next week and the week after that. But Lord, we just pray for your protection upon those who are non-combatants, for many children, you are part of the millions of refugees from Ukraine right now. Father, I pray for your provision upon them, that their lives have been radically altered and changed. Father, I pray for the Church of Jesus Christ in Russia and in Ukraine and around the world that we would be salt and light in this world. Father, we recognize the gospel is the hope of the world. And I do pray that we would be faithful to that gospel today and until Christ returns. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to talk about uh, John Newton. John Newton, who is perhaps best known for writing the, the hymn, the song, Amazing Grace. Now, there's a, a recent biographer of Newton's that has said that amazing grace is perhaps sung, presented in some form 10 million times a year. Now, how he arrives at that, I don't know. But I do know that 
It was one of those songs that's very characterized and associated with various recording artists, whether it's Joan Baez or Johnny Cash, even played at Woodstock in 1969. It, it just transcends times and generations and people because it just resonates with us. So John Newton wrote that, so he lived in the 1700s, and he has two aspects, contrasting parts to his life. As a young man, he was impressed into sea duty. He learned to curse like a sailor, and he was one of the best. He would acknowledge that. He lived as an infidel. He profited off the misery of others, being involved in the slave trade, eventually becoming a slave ship captain. And then finally, even after he retired from being a captain of a of slave ship, he was still an investor in slavery. Now, some of you may know that there was this triangle that took place uh, between England and Africa and then the Americas, and so they would bring merchandise, they would uh, acquire people, humans, to become slaves, Africans, who'd be shipped over to America in chains, and for the rest of their lives, they would be determined, just based upon the color of their skin, to be slaves and to do the work in America. And then again, there would be uh, things that would be sent back from America. Newton has a second part of his life, and that is he becomes amazingly, wonderfully saved. Christ takes hold of his life. He goes into the ministry. He becomes an Anglican minister in the Church of England. And he becomes one of those who is an abolitionist and voices his voice against slavery and with William Wilberforce teaming up with him. They abolish slavery in England. And he gets to see that. He dies in December 1807, but that law is enacted in 1807, the first line of Amazing Grace, you see it on the screens next to me. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When Newton penned those words, he meant it. He recognized and he was not embarrassed to say, I was a sinner, I was a wretch. I was not worthy of grace, grace is a gift, but I was given this amazing grace and I was saved and declared, think about it, righteous in the eyes of a holy God because of the work of Christ Jesus. And he lived his life in awe of that amazing grace. I want to talk about sin and there is a, a, a psychiatrist in America, Carl Menninger, who in 1973 wrote this book, and, and it was called this, Whatever Became of Sin. And here's a quote that Miniature gives from the book, and I just want to read it because this is going back 50 years, roughly 50 years, and he says this, The word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word, not pride in a bad sense. It once was a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. The word went away. It was, has almost disappeared. 
The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Now, we would recognize crime, and we would recognize evil, and we would recognize wars and so forth, but we don't have any TV show called CSI Sin, right? It just doesn't exist. Sin is against a holy God. And once you take God out of the equation, then obviously you don't need to talk about sin, but sin is in relationship to God. The miniature says 50 years ago, it's just not part of our vocabulary anymore in most of society. Occasionally, you will hear it in church or among Christians. In fact, it's a word we just don't want to lose. The question I want to deal with is this. I don't want to just not lose the word. I want to deal with sin. I don't want to see how Jesus deals with sin. And we take our cues from Jesus and we remember John 3, that Jesus doesn't come into the world to condemn the world, even though he's righteous, and he could, but to save the world. So what we want to do is be very clear about our message and what we believe and how we think about it, and how we think about it helps us to think about grace and how amazing is grace to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll read a story where, if you'll look at it, and some of you are familiar with this story of a, a man who is paralyzed, it seems odd if you just allow it to come fresh in a fresh reading. And I just look for when Jesus mentions sins. So I'm going to ask you to stand and hear the word of the Lord. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Jesus is above all. He has authority even over sin. You may be seated. So the three points. First, Jesus chooses to address our problem of sin. He is not one of those who's going to shy away from it and say, I really don't want to use that word. No, he, he's going to address it. Now, in verses 1 and 2, verse 1, Jesus crosses over, again, the Sea of Galilee. Verse 1 may actually be connected to the previous story, but it says he goes to his own town. Now, I just want to pause there because sometimes we tend to skip over this, but it says his own town 
in this uh, a brief teaching time, there's really four towns of Jesus, four towns slash cities of Jesus, that if you know these four, you basically have a good idea of the life of Jesus. Now, all of us should know where Jesus was born, which is where? Bethlehem. It's not a trick question. Okay, Bethlehem. And then um, where he grew up. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Very good. Now oh, you're getting it. Okay, now I'm actually going to show you a map as well. So we're going to see these on, the, uh, on a map. So we have Bethlehem right next to Jerusalem. It's actually not on the map, but about 10K away from Jerusalem. You see Jerusalem in the lower part, and then Nazareth going up there in the area of Galilee. But then the third city or town of Jesus, his own town, is, it's underlined in red, Capernaum. Capernaum. That's Jesus' own town. And then finally, he is associated with Jerusalem because that's where he will go and die for the sins of the world. He will be buried and raised from the dead, and he will ascend into heaven outside of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So if you know those four, just basic geography, if you know those four, you've pretty much got you know, a, whole, a good handle on where Jesus is most of the time in his life. Now let's go to Mark chapter 2, because Mark's going to tell this exact same story. And as Mark uh, sometimes has a tendency to do, he's going to give a little bit more color to it. So look at Mark chapter 2. And again, we're going to affirm that this is a, a Capernaum. Mark 2, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And notice the phrase there. He had come home. He lived there. That was his town. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, get to, him to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. So again, we're dealing with the exact same story. Uh, Mark is just going to give us a little bit more detail. But what's interesting to me, and I hope you caught it there, what is the presenting issue here for this young man? What is the presenting issue? It's pretty obvious He's paralyzed. He has to be lowered, carried to Jesus. He cannot walk. That is the presenting issue. So what does Jesus address? You notice that. Son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now, how many of us would ever expect to go into the emergency room with a broken arm or a broken leg, and the doctor looks at us and says something like this, your sins are forgiven. It just doesn't seem to, to work there. But here they're coming to Jesus, and Jesus is not just the great physician. He comes, we know this, to save his people from their sins. And what he's going to address first is that the sins of this young man are forgiven. The sin is a real problem. In fact, that's the greatest problem this young man has is his sins. The presenting issue is he's paralyzed, 
But the greatest issue he has is his relationship with God. And if there's sin there, it blocks that relationship with God. But Jesus came to deal with those sins. The real problem is sin. Scripture, Subi, I want you to consider, we, we uh, reviewed this year, but let's go back to last year, uh, January, I'm sorry, December. So this verse, we learned this. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because why do you call him the Lord saves? Because he will save his people from their sins. Even before he's born, the angel is going to tell Joseph, he, Jesus, will save people from their sins. And now let's go to this month's uh, scripture, Subi, and you get to actually see the words there, Isaiah 53, 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us, in other words, all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity, it doesn't say sin, but the iniquity, same thought, of us all. Jesus comes to save sinners. Now let me just point out something about illnesses here. All illness, all death, are indirectly connected to sin. That's why there's sin and death, why there's illness and death, it's because of sin. But some illness and death are directly related to sin. Let me suggest that in this story, this young man is paralyzed because there's a direct relationship to a sin that he is aware of, and that's why he's paralyzed. I'll go into that in just a moment. But let me read from Don Carson. And so he's a, a great one to quote, and I'm going to agree with him on this, and this is what he says. But that Jesus should tell this paralytic to take heart from his words sternly suggests that this man's paralysis was the direct result of a specific sin, and the man knew it and labored under the terrible pangs of guilt. So why does Jesus address the sin first? Because this young man is burdened by that sin and that guilt that caused the paralysis. Take heart, son, as a preference to his, your sins are forgiven, would have been unbearably cruel if the, the man was aware of no guilt and wanted only to be free of paralysis. You get it? Now, I don't know, so he is a young man, and Jesus calls him a young man, and I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but we can imagine, if you watch enough of the evening news, sometimes you see young men doing stupid things that could perhaps cause paralysis, whether it's surfing on the hood of cars or doing other stupid things that ultimately are against the law. And whether it's a fight or a fall or whatever it is, this young man knew that that paralysis was caused by something that he did. That's how I'm taking it. Now, what does Jesus do? What's interesting, the purpose of the healing is going to be to prove Jesus' authority to forgive sins. But what Jesus does is beautiful here. He doesn't rub it in the young man's face. He doesn't get him to talk about how stupid he is or how sinful he is. He doesn't taunt him or belittle him. 
he comforts him and he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't rub our sins in our face, but the other thing he doesn't do is shy away from speaking of our sinful condition. Now, where am I in the story? I often ask that when we have these stories in the Gospels, and, and we have Jesus involved in it, and of course, I'm not Jesus, you're not Jesus, so where are you in the story? Where are you, where do you see yourself in this story? I see myself as that young man. Jesus looks at me and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, what an interesting, beautiful thought for me to think about Jesus looking at me in the face and saying, Ben, your sins are forgiven. But he knows me. And he knows my needs. And he knows my sinful condition. And he can speak into my life, into your life, and tell us, that our sins are forgiven. Jesus chooses to address our problem, not just this young man, our problem of sin. And that's the glory of the gospel. That's amazing grace. Here's the second point. Jesus came to forgive sins. Now, the issue of blasphemy is going to be raised by the teachers of the law, the scribes there, and they know the word of God very well, and they recognize truthfully that sin is always against God. And so as we could often illustrate, if someone steals something from you, I don't get to come and say to that person, oh, I forgive you. It's not against me. It's stolen from you, and ultimately, sin is always ultimately against the holy God because God owns all things. And so ultimately, when we sin by stealing against another, you're sinning against God himself. Jesus says to this young man, your sins are forgiven. The teachers of the law are mumbling to themselves, and Jesus knows their hearts, they are saying, that's blasphemy. This one is making himself even equal with God, that he is in fact saying, I am the offended party, God, therefore I get to forgive. So Jesus is going to ask him a question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. Now be careful here, which one's easier the answer is to say, get up and walk. Why? Because other prophets and people of God have healed in the past. So look at the miracles of Elijah and Elisha. They never claim to be God, but they do heal. You look at the ministry of Peter and Paul, they're apostles, and they don't claim to be God, but they do heal. Which one's harder? Well, not just what the prophets are able to do, what only God can do, forgive sins, is always going to be harder. But Jesus basically says, just to show you that I have authority to forgive sins, you're going to see something else. Look at verse 6. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, 
has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. The point is this. It goes from the lesser to the greater. The greater is the forgiveness of sins. But if God would honor the healing, he's saying he's also honoring the forgiveness. Jesus came to forgive sins. I don't care how much disuse the word sin gets in our world. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to keep it in our vocabulary because it's why Jesus came, to save us from our sins. It's interesting, even among ministers sometimes, uh, there's a, a, tense of, a sense of, I don't want to really use those words or talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing to us. Robert, Robert Schuller, who's no longer living, said this. He said, I don't want... Any, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude and uncouth and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. This guy's a minister. He's on TV with the Crystal Cathedral. For years, and yet he's saying, now this is something we don't want to be associated with, making sure people know that they need salvation from their sin, and I don't know what he's preaching, but if we're not saving people from their sin, then what is Jesus doing in this story? Why does Jesus talk about it? Now, in contrast to that, I'm going to go back to John Newton. And here's what John Newton, who wrote those words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch, a sinful wretch like me. He says, they are the happiest Christians who have the lowest thoughts of themselves in whose eyes Jesus is most glorious and precious. So in other words, he, he recognizes that this grace is so amazing, it saves someone who was totally unworthy, he doesn't mean to demean it in the sense that he knows he's made in the image of God. He knows that God has given him talent and ability and is going to use that to preach the gospel and to serve our world. But he also recognizes that this amazing grace means God saves sinners like me, those who are unworthy of it. Amazing grace. Here's verse 1. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The happiest Christians, the happiest Christians, are not those who never use the word sin and never think about it, but those who recognize Jesus has had mercy on my soul. He has saved me from my sin and my guilt, and Jesus looks at me like he does that paralytic, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that is amazing grace. And that's the message of Jesus. Jesus came to forgive sins. 
One of the things we've got to be careful of when we think about this gospel that we proclaim, and we have to hold on to it. And some people say, as they look at sin, they're just going to live in that the denial of sin. And then other people are going to use sin, and they're going to hammer other people with it as if we are better than other people. What, what Newton wanted to recognize is this. I'm not ever going to say I'm better than anyone else. I've just received grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I received it. And that's what's so amazing. And what's even more amazing is it's offered to every single person. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And one of the things that we as a church family need to do is preach grace. And we need to hold on to it. But it's grace for sinners. And so we are not here any more than Jesus came to condemn the world. We are not here to say we're holier than thou or better than anybody else. That's not the gospel. But the gospel is to proclaim that Jesus comes to save sinners like us. And for those who believe and trust in him, he will save you as well. Here's the third point. People who understand forgiveness always respond in praise and thanksgiving. So look at verses 7 and 8 again. Then the man got up and went home. I mean, he just did what Jesus told him to do. Again, Matthew is not interested in filling in a whole bunch of details. He just wants you to see Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That's why he heals the man. Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, and remember they're in this crowded house and the crowds are all around them. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and praised God who had given such authority to man, who gave even Jesus, who is God the Son, the Son of Man, that authority to forgive sins. So the man gets up, goes home, he's forgiven, and he's healed. Presenting issue was a paralysis, but the need, the greatest need, was forgiveness of sins. But this is not the end of the story. The crowd sees this, and they are going to respond with awe, and they praise God. They praise God for the authority that has been given Jesus. That authority, by the way, is going to bring us to the cross of Jesus Christ. One of the things sometimes we can say if we read this story and just say, well, if Jesus can just forgive sins just by his own word, why does he even need to go to the cross? From a theological perspective, he has no right to say this unless the cross occurs. Jesus comes with that mission to die on the cross for sinners like us. And because that cross takes place, Jesus can say to this man, your sins are forgiven, just like the Old Testament saints can go into the presence of God, not based upon the sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats, but what they were pointing to, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist would say of Jesus. 
So we've got a little bit of theology, a little bit of geography, but we've got a lot of Jesus, and we've got a lot of grace in this passage. I want to read the, the rest of the, um, the verses uh, that are from my hymnal in Amazing Grace. Verse 2, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. I think he means by that the, to have that sense of the fear of the Lord, which is a good thing. And grace, my fears, plural, relieve. The fears of this world, no, grace is there. And grace is in front of me. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And once again, he gives us that gospel message. It wasn't what he did, it's what he believed, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Verse 3, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And so after that, uh, that comma, after thus far, some people have said, here's where we live. We live in between the lines of amazing grace, whose grace had brought me to this point thus far, but it's grace that's going to take me home. It's all grace. The fourth verse. When we've been there in the presence of the Lord, 10,000 years, sounds like a long time to most of us, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In other words, we are still going to be singing about amazing grace for all eternity, and if we sing for 10,000 days, we're just like, well, we're just getting started. We're just getting warming up our voices here because he is going to be worthy of praise and adoration, and that's why we worship him here, and that's why we will worship in eternity because Jesus Christ came and he saved sinners like us, and it's grace and it's amazing and it's offered to us in the gospel. Let me give you a, John Newton wrote his own epitaph. And this is what he says. So there's a, um, this is on his gravestone, but uh, you're not going to be able to read that. So let me just read uh, a portion of that. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine by infidel, one who had no interest in, in religion or God, libertine, one who was very profane in their lives, often sexually, a servant of slaves, one that he considered himself below slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That's how he wanted to think of himself. Not as one who was worthy of honor, but one who is worthy of judgment but instead he received grace. And then the privilege of proclaiming that grace to a needy world. At the end of his life, one of the last things that he said was this, and we have this on the screen. He said it this way, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He dies in 1807 at the age of 82, a very good age for that time. 
I want to go and finish up with this passage from 1 John chapter 1, beginning verse 8. John says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's death is sufficient so that you and I, who are servants of Jesus Christ, can go out into this world and proclaim and look anybody in the eye and basically say this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, put your trust and hope in him, and you will be saved. He is the atoning sacrifice, not just for us, but a sacrifice is able to forgive anyone who will believe and all who believe. We're not here to condemn, but we know that we live in a, a dying world. But what we have is a message of hope. One of the things that uh, sometimes you hear is that societies, countries, nations, communities are often defined by the songs that they sing. And one of the songs that we sing here in a, a more modern form is Amazing grace. And one of the things for me, I always want to be associated with a church, a community, that will sing those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Not just sing it, but believe it. Pray with me. Father, I pray that if there are any who are here or those who are listening to me, and I know that there's a, a video broadcast of this service that goes out. And so some may be at home or someplace else, and they're hearing the gospel, and they're hearing about John Newton's life, but also that Jesus came to save sinners like us. And if there's any in this room or any listening to me, Lord Jesus, I pray right now for your spirit to be at work in their heart. And I pray in faith that you would, again, use the message of the gospel to convict people like me, sinners who need a savior, not to deny our sins, but to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like us, and he rose again the third day, and he lives, and he reigns, and he's coming again. Father, for all who believe this, we want to praise you for that amazing grace. And I pray that all who are listening to me, that is their faith and that is their hope. And if not, it is their prayer to receive that grace right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We come to the Lord's table. And I want to point out once again, we think about the bread 
Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he says to his disciples, this is my body, it's for you. We recognize Jesus gives his life for sinners like us. Then he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. Pour it out for us. His blood covers our sins. So this is not a re-sacrifice of Jesus. This is a remembrance. Do this in remembrance of what he has done for us. Who's it intended for? Those who have Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who know that your sins are forgiven. Those who have confessed your sins and believed in the gospel. If that's you, this table's for you. Let's just take this moment and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. thank you once again that you came for sinners like us. Like this young man who was lowered down on a mat. You look at us and in love and in grace you proclaim to us your sins are forgiven. And our guilt is gone. And what we have is grace. The gift of God. For that, we just praise you in Christ's name. Amen. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, this is for you. If you're not a follower of Christ, please do not partake. But for those who are followers, I'm going to ask that you stand, especially those first five or ten rows in these sections. Go to the side. If you're in the side, to the center in the center. And take the bread and the cup, and let's just hold it uh, for a couple of moments, and then we'll partake together. Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is his body, it is for you. Take your remembrance. 
says his blood it is for you take in remembrance pray with me Lord Jesus we know that that crowd that was there in that house in Capernaum they were in awe in awe of your authority in awe that you could come and speak for God and forgive sinners like us. And then they just resounded in praise. Lord, I pray that we would live lives in awe of your mercy and grace. That we would want to know you, love you, serve you, and proclaim that glorious gospel. And Lord, right now, We simply want to praise you for your grace. In Christ's name.